Today we deal with the final articles of the Heidelberg Catechism dealing with Lord's Supper and who may come to the table and so forth article. This is Lord's Day 31 of the Heidelberg Catechism. I'm just going to, if you can find it in your Psalter hymnal and put your finger in there, it's on page 899 in the back because I'm going to point out something to you later on in the message. So if you want to just stick your finger in there, we're going to be reciting this Lord's Day 31 together just so that, um, and the words on the screen will be somewhat different than the words that are in the Psalter. So, but it's nice to put your finger in page 899 and see where it fits. So these are the questions. I'm going to ask the question, and I'm going to ask that you together respond as a congregation. What are the keys of the kingdom? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. How does, the preaching, how does preaching the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? According to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who, after repeated personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions. Such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of his church. Wow. That's the confession. And it's based on scripture. It's based on Matthew 16. Matthew 16, the verses 13 through 20. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. And before we, uh, before we open God's word, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that through your word we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so open the scriptures to us this morning, we pray. Help us to see Jesus 
Help us to respond to him. Give us understanding into the scriptures and into the confession this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in every congregation I have served, I've always been given a set of keys. And those keys have allowed me into the building and virtually every door that had a lock in the building, including my office or study. The keys are a sign of trust, respectability, and I suppose a sort of authority. After all, not everyone in the congregation has all these keys. When I left the congregation, I would have to turn in my bundle of keys, meaning that I no longer had access to the building or to anything in it. And it was always a rather strange, strange feeling. One moment I had access to everything, and the next moment no access at all. It's like when you sell your house or move out of your rental unit. One moment you have the right, you have the authority to open the door, and the next moment you do not. In this congregation, there are people who are known as key holders. We have entrusted them with a certain amount of authority and responsibility. After all, not everybody has been given keys to this building, as some of you know, who sit outside in your car waiting for someone to come with a key to open the door. Keys, they are interesting objects. They open and close, and they close and open all sorts of doors or boxes or vehicles, at least they used to now with updated electronics, keys are becoming a thing of the past. Some of us carry around a whole bundle of keys, and the more we have, the more responsibility we have to ensure that they are used properly and that they are protected. Keys. <laughs> what a pain when you lose them, or when you lock them in your car, or when you lock them in your office, as I tend to do from time to time. And one of my great hopes, one of many, about the new earth is that there will be no more keys. Lord, no more keys, please. But until that day when all will be made new, we'll still have keys and locks unless everything becomes digital. 
Speaking of keys, since 1998, the city of Toronto has handed out the key to the city to 40-plus people. Maybe you have heard of that practice of someone receiving the keys to the city. It's an honorary gesture with a medieval background. In the Middle Ages, many cities had walls around them, and the gates would be guarded during the day and locked at night. And receiving a key to the city symbolized the freedom of the recipient to enter and leave the city at will as a trusted friend of that city. No one would challenge them. One of the latest people to receive such a key from the city of Toronto was the popular rapper Drake. I couldn't find any reference anywhere to anyone receiving a key to the city of Kitchener or Waterloo. Maybe we don't hand out keys or we have no friends. I'm not sure. <laughs> the message of the gospel is one day there will be no more need to give someone the key to the city since all will be made new and everyone will have the freedom to enter or leave as they will. There will be no more need for gates or walls, no more enemies from which we need protection. It's no wonder the church prays, O oh Lord, come quickly. Keys are symbols of authority. Keys are symbols of responsibility. Having the keys to a car or a motorbike or a truck or whatever vehicle gives you the authority not only to drive that vehicle, but also gives you the responsibility not to abuse that right. Uncle Ben, the man of great, great wisdom, spoke to Spider-Man. We learned the line from him, with great power comes great responsibility. With keys come authority and responsibility indeed. Over the last number of weeks, if you've been here, you know that we've been looking at the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And in doing so, we have been reminded of our identity in Christ and reminded of what happens when we come to the table of the Lord. We're fed by His body and blood. We are encouraged in our faith as we eat eternal food, so to speak. On the table are the gifts of God for the people of God. The Lord's Supper is a communal God's people meal. And last week, we looked at who should come to the table, and this question was asked, should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they're unbelieving and ungodly? And then all of you, if you were here, you all answered rather emphatically, no. You read it in unison. No, they shouldn't all come to the table. So we're somehow fencing the table with such an answer. And then I don't know if you remember the rest of the answer. This is answer, uh, question answer 82 from the Heidelberg Catechism. I don't know if you know the rest of the answer, but it's a somewhat surprising answer in this day and age when tolerance is a seeming hallmark of society. If people are allowed to come to the table and partake of the Lord's Supper, and, says the question, if they show by what they profess and how they live that they're unbelieving and ungodly, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. And then all of you who are here read this. Therefore, 
according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound. Did you know the language? Duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. That means the church has been given authority, and that means the church has been given a responsibility. Something which may be very hard for us in this era of church history to accept or perhaps even understand. The church, which at one time it seemed had great power even over civil affairs, now seems so anemic and so powerless. A place we go if we like to go. A body to which we connect for a while, but once it becomes a little too much or too threatening to our beliefs or to our lifestyle or whatever, we leave and go elsewhere and, or we don't go at all anymore. That the church would have any authority might strike us as strange. Like, authority? Really? Police have authority over me. I recognize that. If I'm speeding and get pulled over, I, I know that they have the authority to do that. Parents have authority over their children and can make decisions over them. We understand that bosses have authority they, over their employees. They hire, they fire, they assign work, and we really can't question a whole lot of that. Government has authority over the citizenry of the land by making laws and settling, setting policies that govern the life of citizens, and governments have means by which to hold their citizens accountable. But the church having authority, that's not something that we give much thought to. It actually may, many who sit in the pews tend to ignore it or at least pay lip service to it. And yet, if you have made profession of faith in the Christian Reformed Church, you have recognized something of the authority of the church. Because each person who makes profession of faith in the Christian Reformed Church declares and promises to obey and to abide by the rules of that church. At each profession of faith, you're asked this question. Do you promise to do all you can with the help of the Holy Spirit to strengthen your love and commitment to Christ by sharing faithfully in the life of the church, honoring and submitting to its authority? And do you join with the people of God in doing the work of the Lord everywhere? And then I've never heard anybody say no. Most people have said yes to that. And then before long, they leave the church. And then they don't really want to be contacted anymore, leaving everyone in a real awkward position like, I've left you. Don't talk to me. Yeah, but you made profession of faith. And you said yes, but don't talk to me. Others say yes to that and then live a lifestyle that's unbecoming of God's children or hold to heresies. And if challenged about their lifestyle or about their beliefs, they take offense and they take off and... Either they don't go to church anymore or they go to another church that's much more accepting. And then you can't do anything anymore. Formal church discipline is difficult these days. And yet we say and we confess the church has authority and if you are a professing member, you submit to that authority. 
Now, the idea that the church has authority comes from what we read, read this morning from Matthew 16. It has to do with the keys that Jesus spoke of and that the church is called upon to use. Our Lord Jesus preparing to spend some time alone in preparation for what was to happen to him in Jerusalem, namely die, went to Caesarea Philippi. There he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? The disciples knew that he was referring to himself, so they replied that some people said he was John the Baptist, others said, no, this is Elijah, still others, this is Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Obviously, despite the fact that he had made an impression on people, they were not about to grant him Messiah status as yet. And then Jesus brings the question home to his disciples. What about you? And this is a plural you. What about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, who was often the spokesman for the disciples, answered, You are the Christ the son of the living God. What an incredible answer. It's the pivotal question of Christianity. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Our answer to that question will either place us within or outside the people of God. And then Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, God himself, replied to Peter, who was acting as a spokesperson for all of the disciples. And in his reply, he stated that it's only through the work of the Father that Peter could make such a grand confession. It's only through the work of the Lord that any of us can make a confession concerning Jesus. No human intuition or intelligence or calculation can come up with such a grand confession. It's through the working of the Spirit that we come to understand who Jesus is. The Father has given you this knowledge. And then Jesus changed Peter's name from Simon to Peter or to Rock. And Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. Now, that's quite a statement, a statement that's caused a considerable amount of debate on what exactly it might mean. Was Jesus building his church on Peter or on the solid confession made by Peter? Biblically, it makes sense to suggest that it was on people like Peter. It was on the apostles and the confession concerning Christ that the church would be built. Peter is not the foundation of the church. Christ is the solid foundation which the apostles built, as we note from the book of Acts. And the, and the foundation was so sure and so solid that nothing could destroy it, nothing could knock it off its foundation, not death, not hell, nothing. Upon this rock I will build my church. And then Jesus went on and addressed Peter saying, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And it's because of this gift, this verse, 
And the gift Jesus is said to have given Peter, that every statue of Peter, every painting of Peter, depict him having a key in his hand. When you go to a Roman Catholic church or when you go to some place where there's all kinds of statues, kind of religious statues, you can always find out who's Peter. He's the one who has the key in his hand. Just look for that. And this text has also led to the idea that Peter was the first pope or the head of the church. The very large church in the Vatican is called St. Peter's Basilica, is the seat of the Holy See or of the Pope. Peter was the first one. And since Peter received the keys of the kingdom, even today on the Vatican flag, you will find on the papal coat of arms, there are the two keys crossing one another, depicting the keys of the kingdom given to Peter, the first pope, or so Roman Catholic tradition would say. But were the keys really given to Peter alone? Many commentators suspect not. Peter was the spokesman for the group of the apostles and so thought it was thought that while Jesus addressed Peter, it was really in the context of the whole group of apostles suggested that the keys were given to the church and more particularly to the leadership of the church, the body built on the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So what are these keys? What is it that opens and closes the kingdom? We just read that. The Catechism talks about two keys, the preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. The authority of the church is handed to it by Christ himself. The preaching of the gospel is the first key. The word is proclaimed. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Says the catechism, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. We hear the proclaimed word. We respond by faith. And it's by grace through faith that we are saved. And that's why the proclamation of the word is so important. It's why missions is so important. It's why speaking about Jesus is so important. Paul also affirmed that preaching is important in order for people to be saved. That is for them to enter the kingdom, he wrote in Romans 10. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Preach it. And in the book of Acts, you can read story after story about how the word was preached and people responded by faith and were baptized and the church grew and the church increased. The church has the responsibility to preach the gospel, the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, and not decrease opportunities to tell the good news of Jesus and his saving grace because it opens the door to the kingdom. But the message of the gospel cuts both ways. 
Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. While the good news of Jesus opens the door of the kingdom to those who believe, it also closes the kingdom to those who do not believe. That's a hard thing to accept, but the Bible doesn't shy away from that message. Even in the famous verse, in the famous part of John chapter, uh, John 3, verse 16, we read about the closing of the kingdom in verse 18 where Jesus said, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they haven't believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's a tough reality to grasp and to accept. But it's the very same as the very exclusive claim from Jesus himself. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The first key is that key of preaching. It opens and it closes. The other key is the key of discipline. Look at answer 85. Those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives and refuse to repent and abandon those unchristian teachings or change their unchristian lives, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. The church has authority, authority that the Lord has given and that the Lord recognizes. That's where the losing and the binding find their place, the loosing and the binding. Apparently, those were rabbinical terms meaning forbidding and permitting. In other words, there were certain behaviors and beliefs that were forbidden and not permitted. And one only needs to read some of the stories from the Old Testament of actions that were forbidden by the Lord and people were disciplined as a result. Soon we're going to be hearing a sermon about children who were mauled by bears after they made fun of the prophet Elisha. Even in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, there are a number of stories that speak about what happens when people carried out actions that were contrary to God's will or that denied who God is. In a few weeks, we're going to be hearing the story of Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit and were disciplined. Discipline is part of the life of the church, and it's important in the church. In the early church, if someone continued to do or believe what was not true or forbidden and refused to repent, they were removed. They were disciplined. Discipline meant, meant removal from the people of God, removal from the community. In the Old Testament, that's why God said to those who refused to carry out this covenant sign. That's what God said to those who refused to carry out the covenant sign. In Genesis 17, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Living in such a way that one ignores the covenant or the covenant responsibility, or living in such a way that one denies who Jesus is and denies what he came to, do, came to do, makes a mockery of participating in the Lord's Supper and therefore the call to stay away and the call to discipline. Disobedience to the way or will of the Lord closes 
the kingdom to the one who is disobedient. But a closed kingdom is not the final word. For if people repent from their evil way or thinking, there is forgiveness and re-entry into the community of believers. And so we sing the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Discipline is not about getting rid of people. Discipline on the part of parents is not about getting rid of a child in spite of the fact that sometimes some exasperated parents may consider that as an option, not a real option, but an option nonetheless. Discipline is about discipleship and bringing, one to, bringing someone to an understanding of what a life of thankfulness is. Part of being in our communities is this communal or mutual discipline, walking together in the faith and making sure that we're obedient to the Lord and to his will. Did you happen to notice that when we were confessing the words of the Heidelberg Catechism about the keys of the kingdom, that the Catechism writes this in very, very specific ways. If you have it open on page 899, you can see it there. The, keys, the Catechism, when writing about the keys of the kingdom, begins and ends with the opening of the kingdom of heaven. Question 84, how does the preaching open and close the kingdom? And verse uh, question 85, how is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened? By Christian discipline. They cut both ways, but the opening of the kingdom is the ultimate goal of the Lord Jesus and of his body, the church. Keys, symbols of authority and responsibility. Jesus, of course, ultimately is the owner of the keys but he has entrusted the keys to the church and to the leadership of the church. Much like a master of a house leaves the keys to the estate with his steward or foreman when he goes on a long journey. And you may recognize that there are a number of parables in the New Testament that tell such a story. The Gospels teach that the power of the keys is to make authoritative declarations on earth that hold true in the judgment halls of heaven. The church can wield heavenly power on earth because the heavenly Lord himself is present with those who gather in his name. That's a quote from Reverend Kivenhoven. This means, of course, that the church better know God's will and that the church had better be much in prayer because this is an awesome task and responsibility and authority that we've been given. Terrifying, really. Keys. I pray that the new earth will not have keys. They're necessary here on earth for security reasons, but surely not on the new earth. One day we will not need the keys to the kingdom anymore either, because the word will be proclaimed and all God's children will be with him and there will be no need for discipline because we will all know and love the Lord and walk in his way perfectly. Keys. Now you see them, then you won't. Praise the Lord. Meanwhile, Church of Christ, use the keys that you have been given wisely and carefully, respecting the authority and the responsibility that goes with them.
Amen. O oh Lord, what a responsibility and what an authority you have given to the church. We're not even sure that we fully understand it. But that means that the church has meaning. And the church is important. And your people are important. And the body of Christ is important. So Lord, we pray that we may be busy about the task of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ opening the kingdom of heaven to all who will hear and respond. But we pray too, O Lord, that we may not close things off because of our unbelief or because of the way and perhaps we, we are going to live. We pray that we may be faithful and true to you and to your word, loving you and honoring you for all that you do. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for your reminder of this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.